Remember chemistry class? You remember how many took chemistry? Amen. Yes. Remember studying the elements of the periodic table and running all those experiments with a Bunsen burner. <laughs> you remember that? That was dangerous. <laughs> well, let's review. What is chemistry? The answer to the question is everything around you is chemistry, right? Chemistry is the science that deals with the composition and properties of substances and various elementary forms of matter. There's also another definition of chemistry. It's this. Chemistry is any or all of the elements that make up something. A chemistry question would be, what is this stuff, right? And that, whatever you're looking at, a chemistry question would be, what is this stuff? What is it made of? Tonight, we're going to ask a chemistry question. And tonight is really, as it turns out, by just the providence of God, going to turn out to be a wonderful prelude into our series for next week. The chemistry question I want to ask tonight is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is he made of? Who is he? What are all of the elements that make up the person of Jesus Christ? In that sense, what is the chemistry of Christ? Do you know? Do you know the answer to the question? Next week, we are going to begin the series, Who is Jesus? And we're going to answer that question with just an abundance of the biblical data concerning the person, the work, the nature of Christ. But, to, but for tonight, let's just simply ask it, who is Jesus? Jesus, who are you? There is a picture for us of this chemistry, the chemistry of Christ in the Old Testament. It's the picture uh, from the tabernacle. And in the, our series that we're going to be getting into starting next week, we're going to be looking at some of those things in the Old Testament, such as the wilderness tabernacle. And the picture in, in terms of the chemistry of Christ is the picture that we see in, well, a lot of the tabernacle, but I'm going to zero in on one particular thing, and that's the veil. Remember there was a veil in the tabernacle, the tent, and the, the, that was the, the veil that separated the, the, there was two rooms in that tent, right? There was the bigger room, and then there was the smaller room, and the smaller room was the Holy of Holies. The, the outer room, I guess, if you want to put it that way, was the holy place, and there was a veil that separated the two. And that, that veil, there were specific instructions in terms of how that veil was to be constructed, was to be woven, and all that stuff. And I'll have the verse up on the screen for you. It's Exodus chapter 26, verse 31. God said this, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an art, artistic design of cherubim. I don't want to get y'all uh, concentrating on the cherubim and all that. I want you to just take a look at that verse, and I want you to notice three things, three types of thread that were in that veil. There was blue, purple, and scarlet thread. The order is important the, of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread. It's repeated over 20 times 
in that order in the book of Exodus. And that's kind of an incredible number, really, when you think about it. The blue and scarlet are never placed side by side in any of the fabrics of the tabernacle. There's an important truth here in the connection with the person of Jesus Christ. The blue, blue. anytime you see the color blue, it's what makes you think of what? The sky, and therefore it's the, the, the color of the heavens. It's the color of heaven. And it speaks of the divinity of Christ. And then you come to the, to the purple, which is a color that kind of pictures the um, royalty, but it's kind of an earthly royalty. And then you come to the scarlet, the scarlet thread, which we'll get into deep, and you don't want to miss this in the series, but it deals with the, the humanity of Christ and specifically the blood of Christ that was shed. And so you have the blue thread of heaven, the royalty, the, 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 the human royalty, and the human, the humanity of, of Christ in the scarlet thread. And so you have this all woven into the tabernacle, all through it, and the veil that we're concentrating on tonight. And so we have the type, and the anti-type is, of these colors, is found in the incarnation. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God in the flesh. He was both God and man. In Christ, these two incredible dissimilar natures unite in one perfect person. The purple coming in between the blue and the scarlet tells us of the blending of, or union of Christ's two natures. This is the great mystery of, of Jesus. In him were combined, as we learned in Colossians just recently, right? In him were combined all the fullness of the Godhead bodily with all the sinless emotion and affections of man. Which brings us to our text tonight. In our text tonight, we will see these two representations of the person of Christ. At Jesus, at, at Lazarus' illness, his death, and then what we're going to see is Jesus brings him back from the dead, we see these two different sides of Christ, these two natures of the Lord. As Jesus approached Bethany and he comes and begins to talk with Mary and Martha, we see the man. We see the man Jesus, and we specifically see him this way as a man of sorrows. And then as we get to the latter part of our study tonight, we'll see the God of glory. How's that? We'll see the person of Christ who brings forth the glory of God and demonstrates his power over a material, the material world and death. And so in, in, an incredible, incredible display of the glory of God. So let's look at this passage. And as we're looking at all these different elements, there will be various practical uh, inputs too uh, that will, will speak to our lives. So let's look at this. First, we want to look at a man of sorrows. Let's pick it up in John chapter 11, verse 28. It says this, and when Jesus, and when she said, 
had, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Joseph, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? In this section, we see a side of Christ. We see a, a, a nature of the God-man, and we see really the humanity of, of Jesus. We see that he was a man of sorrows. He was a man of sorrows. He's full of compassion. He's moved with compassion. The Old Testament scriptures foretold that the Messiah would be this kind of person. We see it back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It says this, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Here in John chapter 11, we see the compassion of the Lord. We see that he was a, a, a person full of compassion, that he was a man of sorrows, that, that he was despised, that he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief. And we see this even in our text tonight. We see as he comes to Bethany and they're, they're greeting him and they're coming out to him and there's just, it's just, a, it's, it's a sad scene. I mean, they're just, there's Jews that have come in from Jerusalem and, and Martha's distraught and Mary's in the house and she hears Jesus is coming. She comes out, the, the, they're going out with her and they're, they're just, can you imagine, just weeping everywhere. And, and, and Jesus sees all this. And, and this is what we need to see and we, we need to know about Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a man, he's a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He, he knew what it was to, to cry. I mean, I don't know if we often think about that in our day-to-day -day lives as we're kind of going through life and we're kind of going through our thing and, and um, we, we, we may actually think that whatever it is that we may be going through is pretty bad. But, you know, Jesus went through some pretty tough things, too, as a, as a man. And he was acquainted with grief. And, he, and here he is at, at the, the home of his, of his dear friends. And Lazarus is dead. And everybody is just in terrible, terrible mourning about this situation. And, uh, and, and just, you know, 
the, the, one of the themes that we've been talking about in this chapter is just the love of, of Jesus that he had uh, for all of us and specifically for these friends. These were very, very dear friends of his um, that, he, that he spent a lot of time with. And, and he is just moved in, in, and, and, he, and he weeps. The next verse in Isaiah, we read verse Isaiah 53, 3, I want to lead, read you Isaiah 53, 4. The prophet goes on, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So, you know, he's acquainted with grief. He's acquainted with going through these tough things. And not only is he acquainted with it, but he it was foretold that he would be acquainted with these things and that he would take our uh, sorrows upon himself, that he, car- he will carry our sorrows, that he will bear our griefs. And so let us be reminded of this aspect of Christ tonight, that he is there to carry our sorrows, that he is there for you. He's there for me. I mean, if you ever feel like, well, no one's there for me. <laughs> Nobody's there for me. Well, there, there is one person that is absolutely there for you, and it is Jesus. And, and, and he said he, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and he's there for you, and he's there to, he, to, to, to bear your grief with you. To, he's compassionate about your situation. He, he wants to carry your sorrow. And uh, you need to understand that tonight. Jesus asked, where have you laid him? This is an interesting question because, you know, Jesus, um, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is, there's different, each Gospel is written, you know, with a different um, point of view of the person of Christ. And the point of view of the, the Gospel of John is really the deity of Christ and the, glo- the, the glory of, of, of God in that sense. And, and a couple of, of passages throughout John uh, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has you know given us a, a little uh, statements here and there uh, about uh, his divinity and and about his power and about his knowledge. Um, there's one place where it says he he knows what's in the heart of man. He didn't need to know. He didn't need to you know kind of learn of them. He he knew. He he knows what's in the heart of man, and you know. And I'm certain I'm certain that he even knew the answer to this question. Where have you laid him? Um, but I believe that it shows us another side of the man, the God man. And it shows that he is a gentleman. He's very sensitive to the situation. And here he asks just a simple question. And asks, well, this is Jesus. This is God's son. Doesn't he know where they laid the body? Certainly, I believe he does. But he is gentle in his compassion, and is not pre- does not present himself in any pretentious type of a way. And then we see, after he asks this question, and then there's just all the mourning going on, that he becomes overcome with the emotion. And uh, it says, he wept. Now this is the, the quote-unquote, the shortest verse in the Bible, right, for all you trivia, you know, if you're ever on Jeopardy or whatever. <laughs> You know, this is the answer to the question. And, um, and, it, and it wasn't on the cross. <laughs> a lot of people think, oh, well, he wept and 
was on the cross. No, it was at the death of his, of his friend. He wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. And uh, he wept. He cried over the situation. And here he was about to raise Lazarus back from the dead. I mean, this even tells me a little bit more about this situation in that God, God knows like the end of the, the situation, but that doesn't, uh, uh, he's, he's still with us in the moment. Amen? He's, he, you know, here, here's a God that's the Alpha and the Omega, you know, the beginning and the end, you know, and yet he is with us in the moment. And honestly, I really love that. I really, really love that because you could say, well, you know, he's a little disconnected, you know, he's, he's not, he's not, you know, the, the compassion isn't just, it doesn't, I don't feel it because he's just like, well, hang on, it's all going to turn out in the end. Don't you know, I'm coming back on a white horse and I've got a tattoo on my thigh and I've got it under control, you know? <laughs> oh, Yes right? But yet he's with us in the moment. He's with you in the moment. He's with you in all the moments of your lives. So just remember that. So we see this man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We see that side of Jesus. But then as we move on in this passage, we see another side of Jesus. We see the God of glory. So let's pick it up Verse 38 of John 11, it says this, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So in that first little section that we read tonight, we saw the man of sorrows, the side of Christ where he's the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's with us in the moment. He's, he hasn't skipped to the end of the story. That He realizes that we're here, we're in time, we're living and breathing at this particular time, and he's there with us. But then we also see in this passage the side of the Lord, the God of glory. Amen? We see the God of glory. Jesus has not only revealed himself as a man, a man of compassion, a man of sorrows, but he's also revealed to be God himself. And this is how the Gospel of John portrays Christ. This is the, this is the, the angle, this is the lens uh, that, that, that John uh, portrays 
the person of Christ in his gospel. Uh, Jesus has revealed himself and John has presented him as God, the God of creation, the God of glory. In this section, we do see the glory of God because we see the power of God. We see his ultimate power over, over the material universe and we see his power over death. Here we have Jesus who is now moving to the tomb of Lazarus and we see Jesus once again groaning within himself. We see, we see the, the, uh, the man of sorrows, right? So he's moving towards uh, this end. He's moving towards what is going to be the dis this display of the glory of God, but we see here he is groaning again. And we see that he's come to the tomb, and the tomb was a cave with a stone against it, um, probably very similar to the type of tomb that Jesus was placed in. The, the, you know, the, the Middle East, you have these types of tombs, and uh, uh, Joseph, or uh, I'm sorry, um, I was thinking Joseph of Arimathea, which was the tomb that uh, Jesus was laid in, which was, was Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Jesus, it was prophesied he would be laid with uh, the rich or the, in, in the rich man's tomb. And then here, you know, it is said that um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were uh, a people of some money and some means. Um, Mary is the one who anoints Jesus' feet with the costly uh, oil that was up to a, said to be up to a, year, a, a year's salary. And, uh, and so this was a family uh, that, that had some means. And so probably some, in terms of the tomb, probably something similar uh, to it. And, um, and uh, I actually have actually been to Bethany, and I've actually been right here to, to around this spot. I don't know. They, they, they think they know that this was the spot or whatever, but uh, this was it, and we, we went in and, and, uh, and, and all that good stuff. But uh, he says, take away the stone. So here at the tomb of Jesus, uh, Lazarus, Jesus is is uh, he's saying, take away the stone. Now, when Jesus is going to do a miracle, um, if, you, if you read through, certainly in the book of John, you look at the miracles of Christ, a lot of the times, uh, Jesus gets other people or the person that the miracle is going to be with getting them involved in some type of action towards the, this miracle. Started off in Canaan, Cana, when there was no more wine at the wedding. Remember that? It was a bad deal, bad, bad, bad situation. They ran out of wine, and there were six large jars of, of uh, these huge jars, right? And... Uh, Jesus says, fill them up with water. So these guys have to go out and fill these jars up with water. There's other times that there's different things that people are asked to do that are a part of this, this thing that is, is, is Jesus is getting ready to do this miracle. And here is kind of no different. He says, take away the stone. Now, certainly if Jesus is able to call forth 
a man who's been dead for four days and in the, in the tomb. I mean, he could have done a, you know, I don't know, like some type of a Star Wars Yoda thing or something and just kind of just boom, you know? I mean, right? I mean, certainly he's, he is the force. <laughs> and so, but he says, no, he says, take away the stone. And what, what I see in this is that there's, there's things that God wants us to do that we can do. Jesus wants to do in your life what only he can do. But he wants you to do what you can do. Amen? And I think there's a lesson here to learn in this, that we got to do what we've been called to, commanded, asked to do. You know, if you don't, oh, well, you know, I don't know about doing all these commands and obeying all that. Well, just think about it. If Jesus was here and said, hey, Charles, would you do this? And be like, oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> All right. What do, you, what do you want me to do? All right. Right. I mean, who in this room wouldn't get up and say, okay, yeah, you want me to move the stone? Want me to do this? Fill these water pots with water? No problem. All right. Let's get some, you know, let's get this working. Can we get an assembly line going here <laughs> or something? We'll get it done. Right. If Jesus asked, we do it. And Jesus wants us to do what we can do. And I think there's a powerful uh, point here. Uh, you've heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves. First of all, this is not in the Bible. Okay, so let's just clear that up, right? Let's just, let's just finally, once and for all, let's clear that up. That is not in the Bible. Second, it's not often true because God helps those who were incapable of helping themselves. It is not God's way to do for us what we are responsible and capable of doing ourselves. God wants to intervene and do the thing that we cannot do. And sometimes if we'll just do the thing that we can do, the thing that we've been asked to do, that's the thing probably that's standing in the way of us being able to see the glory of God intervened and played out in our lives. And sometimes there's people that are wondering, where's God and where's God and where's God? And I don't, I hear all this stuff and preachers preaching sermons and all this stuff and Z88 and all the rest of it. Where's God? I'll tell you where he is. He's right here. And he simply asked us to do something simple. And if we'll do that simple thing, God is going to release his power. He's going to show up in his glory and we're going to be amazed perfect example is that of a farmer. You know, I mean, we, if, we, if you had a farmer that was just sitting there looking at his fields going, yep, God's going to bring in a great crop this year. God, great, 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 great crop coming in. Oh yeah. Have you, have you plowed the field? Oh no, I haven't plowed them. Have you put seed out there? Oh no, no, no. I haven't put any seed out there, but God's going to bring a wonderful harvest in here. No. 
He's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You've got to get out there and do what you can do. You've got to plow the ground. You've got to sow the seed. You've got to get rid of the weeds and the rocks and the thorns and the thistles and, 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 and do all that. And God's going to bring the rain. God's going to bring the sun around every day. And he's going to bring forth and do that thing that, that happens, Right? And stuff's going to grow and stuff's going to happen. There's going to be a, a harvest. Amen? There's going to be an incredible harvest. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. I'll throw it up on the screen behind me. He said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, how, how can you apply that to your life? Now, a lot of times... Um, you hear this type of verse being brought out in some type of a sermon on giving or something like that, and so on and so forth. And, and, and that's true, but I think that you can apply this to your own everyday life in, in terms of just the things that you can do that are going to, to bring uh, the things that God wants to do in your life. So, you know, it may be just, you know, putting in a little bit of the extra hard work or, or you know, just thinking about things or, you know, working on stuff, doing the things that you can do is that idea of sowing generously. And if you want to reap, you want to have an abundant harvest, you've got you to sow generously. And so if, you know, as a general rule, you know, if you, if you don't like the harvest that you're getting, you know, sow some more, <laughs> right? Well, it's just, you know, I don't like the harvest. I don't like this harvest. All right, we'll get out there and, and sow some more because the principle is there. Um, so Jesus asked them to take away the stone. And in asking that the stone be removed, Jesus once again avoids any pretension in the way he did things and the way he carried himself. And we would do well to follow his lead in that, certainly. Martha speaks up. And tells Jesus, Lord, by this time, there's a stench for he's been dead for four days. Four days. First, let's deal with this four days. A dead body, four days. When a body dies, it immediately begins the process of, of uh, decomposing. By the fourth day, there would, be, there would have been some serious uh, deco decomposition that would have taken place. I mean, it really doesn't take long, and especially like in a Mediterranean climate, probably wouldn't be very long where uh, that uh, decomposition would begin to uh, move very rapidly. Years ago, this is probably going back, I don't know, 16, 17 years, uh, in the church uh, over in Orlando that, that we pastored, Calvary Chapel, South Orlando, there was a brother in the church, and I remember he called me up one day, and he was just distraught, and his, uh, he, said, he quickly let me know that, it, that they found his father passed away. And he went on, he said, Charles, I, I want to tell you about how they found my dad. No one had heard from him for a, for a couple of days, two, three, four, I think five days. No one had heard from him. And they went over to his apartment and they found him. He had been dead and they 
literally realized that he had been dead for five days. Okay, so one day longer than Lazarus. And it was, um, it was really bad. Just to give you an idea of the decomposition, um, they had to call in like, like literally special teams and things to come in and deal with the cleanup specifically. Um, in fact, I don't know if this is kind of sensitive, but I did talk to my brother today because he's a very good friend of mine, and I told him I was going to be mentioning this. And, and uh, he said, you know, Charles, uh, I don't know if you'll remember this, but they went in there and they, they actually asked, was your father black? And it was like, no, he wasn't black, but he'd been dead for five days. So that's an idea of how quickly the body begins to decompress, de- de- decompose. So you have Lazarus in the grave for four days. And Martha is certainly aware of the, of the, uh, the, the decomposition process. She says, certainly, this is, this is not a good situation. He's been dead for four days. And, uh, and so Martha reminds Jesus of this. But this kind of elicits a response from Jesus. Let's pick it up in the text there. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so he kind of speaks to her and, and he says to her, you know, I think, you know, in a nice <laughs> way, that he, he says, no, 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 hold on. No, 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 come on, I'm, 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 I'm asking the stone be mo- removed. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do something here. I told you that you would, if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God. You, you've already come to me and said that, you know, if I had made it earlier, you know, I would have been able to prevent his death. So, so let's keep believing. Amen. Let's keep the faith going. And so, you know, he says to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you could see the glory of God? And just a piece on that, the glory of God is really ultimately what we need, what we want to see. So, you know, my thing on this is a, there's a couple things. It's, it's doing the thing that God asks us to do in the process and then believing that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Okay, so doing the thing that God asked you to do and believing that God's going to do what he said he'd do. And what that's going to do, that combination is going to bring about a showing forth of the glory of God. Amen? And that's what you want. That's what we want. That's what we need. You know, Moses spoke with with God. And the Bible tells us that he met with, with God face to face. You know, he spoke with God. But he said, God, he said, in Exodus 33, he said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And then for us, is we, we want to see the glory too. We want to know the glory. And Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I'll throw it up on the screen behind me. It says this, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, 
who was shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we're, God wants to shine and show his glory to us. He wants to. The question is, what is it that's stopping us from seeing the glory? Is it that there's that thing that he's asked us to do that we've been unwilling to do? Or we just haven't found time or we just haven't done it? Or is there a lack of faith there where you know, you're just not believing that God's going to do what he said he's going to do? I, I'm not trying to hammer down on anybody tonight. I, I just want you to move past. The, I want you to grab hold of those two points and move past so that you can experience the glory the way that the Lord wants you to see it, the way that, that Paul's talking about here in this verse in 2 Corinthians, that the, the light of Jesus, that the glory of Jesus would show forth in your life. Did I not say to you? You know, what would Jesus say to us tonight? What would he say to me? You know, I mean, am I better than Martha? Am I somehow better than Martha that, that Jesus wouldn't say, Charles, did, did I not say to you? Charles, didn't I say to you? If you'd believe, you would see the glory of God. What would he say to you? So they took away the stone. And it wasn't until Martha's objection and Christ pointing out his promise of seeing the glory of God that they finally obeyed the word of Christ. <laughs> so this shows me another, this, this is another aspect of Christ, and it is the long-suffering, <laughs> the patience of Christ. You know? Can you, can you just imagine the glory that, that, that the Lord wants to show forth in my life and your life? And, and he's like, you know, if you take the stone away and you keep believing, I'm gonna, you're going to see an incredible thing. The glory of God's going to be showing up in a, in a powerful way. But we're just kind of like, and he's like, did, did I not tell you? Did I not say to you? Wow. Wow, he's patient. He is so patient with us. He's gentle. He's patient. He's just awesome. What, what would it be that would prevent you from doing the simple thing that God's asked? Because most of the time, these things are not hard things. Most of the time, they're just kind of things that God wants to, us to do. You know, it's like I'm reminded of the passage. We don't have time to get into that story, but um, Naaman, the Syrian commander who was healed of, of leprosy, you know, and, and, and the, Lord told, the Lord through the servant told him to go and, and uh, you know, dip in the, in the river, right? And, uh, and he said, well, you know, why would I do that? We, we, we have rivers. Why would I come all the way down here to... to you know, get in this river. And it's kind of like, well, why, why wouldn't you just want to do what the command of the Lord was? You know, it's a simple thing. Why, why wouldn't you want to just do it? And, and God wants to, to do an incredible thing in our lives. And 
And man, he's so patient with us. So what did Jesus do? He lifts up his voice to the Father. He thanks the Father for having heard him. Jesus is making a point in he's making a point for everyone that's hearing. He's raising up his voice. He knows that he knows that the Father hears him. In another place he says, I and the Father are one. I only do what what the Father tells me to do. I only do what proceeds to me from the Father. But he is just demonstrating his connection to the Father. He thanks the Father for having heard him and the Father hears him and he goes on and he says, he, he, he cries out with a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come forth. He cried out in a loud voice so that, so that everyone nearby could hear him. He knew that the Father heard him. But also, very specifically, he called Lazarus. And this was important because he was literally calling into the depths of Hades. He's calling into the depths of Sheol. He's calling into the depths. Can you imagine if he just said, come forth? Everybody would have come forth out of the graves. But he said, Lazarus, come forth, right? And what this does is it tells me a couple things about what God does. Remember, we were talking about it on Wednesday night, that being a Christian is you're a Christian, you're in the family of God because you have faith and believe that God can do something about deadness. Remember that? Wednesday night? And here we are in John 11, and God is doing something about deadness, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And how he does things about Lazarus, uh, deadness is he, he calls the dead by name. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And it's exactly how you are called, Christian. God calls you by name. God said, Chris, come forth. David, come forth. Dan, come forth. Denny, come forth. He said, come forth. And he spoke your name. And you went from being dead in your sins to being alive in him. And he called you forth in his power. And this is how Christ calls us. He calls us from the grave, from the deadness of our sins. He calls us to come forth and to be made alive, to be regenerated, to be born again of the Spirit. And so we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And how did that happen? It happened because we heard the word, right? Paul's very clear on this, and we'll get to this later in Romans, but he says, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, right? So you heard the word, you responded to the word, and the Lord called you by name and said, come forth. And he brought you up out of the grave the, of the deadness of your sins. Amen. Wow. It's incredible. It's incredible. And we have this powerful statement that Paul makes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that talks about this. He says, and you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
So if you're, if you're a Christian here tonight, every single one of you was Lazarus, basically. And you were called forth from the deadness of your sins. Lazarus came forth out of the grave. He came forth. I'd, lo I'd love to see this, the, the video on this. He comes forth and he's all wrapped up in grave clothes, right? So he's like a mummy, you know. And what did Jesus say? He says, loose him. Okay, so here is again. Jesus says, move the stone. He gives them something to do. They're involved. Then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He comes forth, and then he says to everybody, help him, loose him from the grave clothes. Loose him from the grave clothes. Jesus was in effect saying, I brought him to life, now I want you to help by loosening him of these, grave, these bandages. I'm giving you the privilege and responsibility of loosing him from these grave clothes. And this is what we are a part of in the family of God. Amen? We are all a part of ministering one to another in the church and loosening the grave clothes of our brothers and sisters. Amen? This is what's happening every Saturday after Saturday after Saturday as we're praising God, as we're uh, listening to the word, as we're encouraging one another, as we're being involved together in various things, as we're working on this building and doing all the things that we did here and working in Java Point and all the various things that we're doing there, as we're standing with one another as the body of Christ. As we stand together arm in arm, what are we doing? We're loosening the grave clothes. We're not going to let you go. We're not letting you go back to the grave. We're not letting you go back in there. We're going to spin you around and get you right out of these grave clothes. Amen? So Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he turns and says, get him out of these grave clothes. And so he turns to us. And so you've been commissioned as a, uh, as a, as a declother, <laughs> degrave clother. <laughs> I don't know. Come up with some term. We'll make a, we'll invent a word. This is what we've been called to. Loose those around you by standing with them in faith. Amen? Amen? Wow, Jesus is really revealed to us in this passage in John, in John chapter 11 and Lazarus. We see, we see this tonight. We see the God-man, right? We see the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the, the man who wept over his friend, the man moved with compassion, and then we see the God of glory, the one who is one with the Father, and has power, ultimate power, and power over death. And this is Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm glad to know him, and I want to know him more. 